0: Politics is about people and you really have to be attuned to listening to people and listening to people tell you what they want. Spreadsheets can't always do that. The candidates who appeal to me and who I've always enjoyed working for are candidates who are effective communicators because they listen to people and they know why they're fighting and they stay true to the why.
1: is the Democratic political campaign manager who recently ran the John Fetterman for Senate campaign in Pennsylvania. He talks about how his career took him to this place and what he's learned along the way. You should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Brendan McPhillips. Check out the
0: large, detailed and high quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount.
1: Brendan, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I'm Brendan McPhillips, most
0: recently campaign manager for John Fetterman. I've been working on campaigns for about a decade, working on progressive candidates and causes for many years, and just really love to get behind people who are unique and and have something special about what they're offering. And so a little bit of a road warrior, but mostly in Pennsylvania. Also did Iowa for Pete back in the presidential primary, and then moved over to back home to Pennsylvania for the general election for Joe Biden. Did a brief stint in Florida on Andrew Gillum's primary in 2018. That's a whole wild roller coaster, but mostly a Pennsylvania guy, a little bit of national experience, and uh, just love fighting a good fight.
1: Did you grow up in Pennsylvania?
0: I grew up in Southern California, actually, which... I think people sometimes forget is actually kind of a conservative place outside of the bigger metro areas. So I grew up in a rather conservative suburb, Temecula, California, and had my political awakening, if you will, in my late teens, early 20s, was a grocery clerk at a UFCW grocery store that was going through a big strike. This was back when George Bush was sending us into ill-thought-out wars and really started thinking about what more I could be doing to make a difference and went back to uh, college for, I think the third time at some point when I was like 22 or 23 at my local community college and then transferred to Notre Dame after I finished my general studies. Um, just kept moving east. My first race was in Southern Indiana after graduating and then had the opportunity to come out to Philly suburbs in Bucks County for President Obama's re in 2012 and just stuck out here. Had a lot of great people and got involved in some good races, and it's been a lot of fun ever since.
1: What did you study at Notre Dame?
0: Peace studies and political science. Political science, a little cliche for a campaign person, but I found peace studies to be really interesting discipline. I think it had a lot more to do with politics and political science did. You looked at a lot of you know, international conflicts, Ireland, Mozambique, French Morocco really like dug into the history the the politics around colonization and, and those conflicts and how they were overcome either peacefully or otherwise and a lot of lessons that can be applied to to modern politics obviously
1: that somewhat irregular path to college is that helpful in campaigning to understand maybe a little bit more the people who aren't the college-educated part of the Democratic electorate and how to speak to them? How do you think about your background in connecting to people Yeah,
0: I absolutely think that it is. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm very privileged. I have a degree from what's considered an elite university, but kind of fell into there by, by accident. And so having those years of... Working what I'd call a real job doesn't require a college degree. Meeting people from different walks of life helped to frame my experience and interpretation of what it is to make a living and support a family and just exist in the world outside of any political bubble that I think too many of us who work in the business don't get out of. It was really informative to me when I was in Notre Dame and I was five years older than my peers because I had messed around and surfed and partied too much in and after high school. But it gave me a little bit of wisdom in terms of age, a little bit more work experience and, and life experience that made me just like question the kinds of assumptions that I think too many people in college don't. If you do choose to go to college, it's supposed to push you and challenge your thinking and you know, a lot of a lot of wealthy white kids from the Chicago suburbs at Notre Dame. And God bless them, many of them are my friends, but a lot of misguided conservative thinking also. And so I found an interesting friend group there that, you know, like to push envelope in different ways. And some of my favorite classes there were with, I think, some like secretly progressive nuns and other interesting figures that tried to, to break that mold of thinking. But yeah, I think that you know, going to junior college, um, punching a clock for many years, and this wasn't like a summer job. You know, I worked at the grocery store for like seven, eight years. And just having that experience of like what it can be like to throw out your back, breaking down pallets, and you know what you have to do when uh, you have to go to your workers' comp doctor to get that checked out. Like, just really opened my eyes to a lot of things that a lot of people have much worse, and I think that's helpful when you're advocating for politicians or policies that, you know, people say are intended to make folks' lives better, having some perspective about what that really looks like on the ground for real people is invaluable.
1: Did you run across Buttigieg at all when you were in Indiana in college or beyond before later hooking up with him as a candidate for president?
0: Yeah. Interestingly enough, when I was a student, he, I think, recently moved back to South Bend, came and spoke to the college Democrats. I don't think he would remember this, but definitely met him then. And then saw him on the campaign trail. After I graduated, I was working on a congressional race in the Southern part of the state. Pete was campaigning for state treasurer at the time. This was back in 2010. And bumped into him once or twice, said hello, just thought he was an interesting guy. We were similar in age, very different in life experience. And I was impressed by how clearly smart he was and deciding to like move back home and pursue a path to public service. He seemed very genuine and, and thoughtful and didn't think too much of it at the time, but did seem like an interesting guy. And so I paid attention to his career really casually over the years. I'd be back in South Bend, for a football game and see the development of the city that took place over his tenure there in some really noticeable ways. And then after the 2016 campaign, when everybody was crying in their beers, somebody mentioned to me that Pete was running for chair of the DNC. And I just kind of like phone banked my way into helping with that. Just went and like volunteered on that. Didn't have any big relationships to bring to the table or anything at that point in my career. But I just, you know, did what was needed and got to know him a little bit there. One of his best friends who was the campaign manager on the presidential race, Mike Schmoll connected us and Mike, I actually interned for when I was a student at Notre Dame and he worked for Joe Donnelly, who was then the Congressman. So just kind of some random small world connections and, um, you know, just picking up the phone to make a call to an old friend to see how I could help. And then a few years later, you know, I'm further along in my career, I had done some bigger things. Andrew Gillum's race being one of them. Pete called me, I think, the day after uh, we won the primary, which was a big upset. Like, Andrew was not expected to win. So got a lot of exciting national news that night and it was all really fun, except that his crazy kitchen cabinet showed me the door the next day. So I got this really nice message from Pete offering to be helpful and wanting to congratulate me. And I didn't have the heart to call him and tell him that I had just been fired from this big job. So (laughs) I uh, gave that some breathing room and then reached out to Mike again like a month later and, and said, hey, like I was too embarrassed to tell Pete this, but let him know I wasn't ignoring him and shortly thereafter i had another call with pete and he was just really like gracious and like talked to me about it and we stayed in touch a little bit i told him and mike that i was really interested in helping them if he decided to make the the jump and one thing led to another over a period of many months and i found myself in iowa so it was a interesting path
1: i want to ask you a little bit about something that we started talking about i think before we started recording which was your feeling about why you choose the races you choose. You worked for Fetterman the first time um, and you worked for Gillum. And that makes me think these are kind of progressive heroes in those moments. And in Fetterman's case, Beyond, and Gillum's a more complicated story. Tell me about your philosophy there as a campaign manager or as a an operative. How do you think about who you want to work for and why?
0: I think a lot of it has to do with how I started my career. Like I didn't go to school right away. I didn't want to work in politics because I wanted like a fancy job. I wanted to work in it because I found myself compelled to actually try to make change. And so, you know, I had a good union job. I could make a good living doing that, but I just felt like I guess called to the work of trying to go and help elect people who could make a bigger impact on the country and the world and when I'm looking for jobs, you can't be super picky when you're starting your career. like I worked for the local congressman, he seemed like a nice guy, and I got an interview, and so I went and I hustled for it. But by the time you know you get to the point where you can be a little more selective and in interviewing, and it's really important to me to look for somebody who my values line up with, which are pretty progressive. I think that word gets twisted around a little bit <laughs> as the years progress, but I'm looking for someone who's going to be looking out for working people who's not afraid of pushing big, bold ideas and doing things differently. And I think there's a lot of people who do this work who just want to get a paycheck, just like in any industry, in any job. And you know, we all got to make a living and that's fine. But I've always tried to be discerning in really thinking about who I go and work for and wanting to know that they're motivated by the right things and doing it for the right reason and that's definitely something I saw in Fetterman, definitely something I saw in Mayor Pete, and even in Andrew Gillum, too. I know like you know he got into some legal trouble.
1: People really were wowed by him for years before he ran. And that was an amazing victory in the primary. And it was a disastrous, narrow defeat in the general, some scandals. But a lot of people were very attracted to him and still think highly of him.
0: Yeah. And interestingly, all three of those people were mayors. Mayor Fetterman, Mayor Buttigieg, (laughs) Mayor Gillum. And actually, the candidate who I worked for before Fetterman was Helen Gimm. I ran her first council at large race in Philadelphia in 2015, and she really like opened up my eyes to what municipal politics could be. I never even wanted to work in local city politics because I just had this stereotypical impression of how corrupt and shady it is. She, at the time, was just like a lifelong public education activist, community activist, ran with no institutional support or endorsement. I took the interview basically because I wanted to stay in Philadelphia because I started dating somebody and I didn't want to move again. And I was wowed by her in the interview. And then we had a lot of fun on the campaign, won a narrow victory. That experience really showed me like how much change you can make at the municipal level and how important that is. The next year when Trump won and there was so much uncertainty in the federal government, Seeing the way that local governments responded to his dr- draconian immigration policies. I was at the rally at the airport when people were heading down there to stop people getting plucked off off their flights or out of out of the line and deported. and that was led locally by Helen, by the mayor. Other electeds were called. and it was inspiring. That's what I'm looking to do. I'm looking to work for people who, are willing to fight those big fights, put a marker down on policy, and just really stand for something.
1: You you talked about your first impression of Helen Gim. What was your first impression of, of Fetterman?
0: So my first impression of Fetterman was actually at Notre Dame, too. He came and did a lecture there when I was a student. And at that time, you know, he made no indication of being interested in any other office. He was just talking about the work that he was doing for his community in Braddock and some of the struggles of old declining industry towns like that. And I remember having a conversation with a friend leaving that lunch and remarking to one another, like, Hey, this was a really cool guy. I mean, interesting story. It would be awesome to see him run for a higher office like Senate or something one day. Then years later through, I mean, nothing more than just like luck and fate was having a conversation with a former boss of mine at a really funny bar that no longer exists in philadelphia the turf club was a underground off-track betting site in uh, (laughs) center city and he had just started a media company and was doing john's tv and like talked to me about him and i just i think i volunteered to help with the launch or maybe like bill asked me to i just like jumped at it because i remembered meeting him and and thinking to myself how genuine he was and how clearly committed he was to just doing good. And so that was my first impression of him was this is just a guy who's wanting to do good work. And when I met him again just before becoming his campaign manager in 2015, it was just really clear like he he described himself as like a social worker who was using politics to advance the common good. And that's exactly who he is at his core. It's that kind of a quality that I find attractive in, in deciding to go to work for somebody and, and getting, putting yourself through that exhausting grind. You, know, you want to make sure they're actually in it for the right reasons.
1: I noticed that you worked for Hillary's general election effort in Pennsylvania, that, 20, that fateful 2016 contest. What happened there?
0: Yeah, so after, you know, we weren't successful on John's primary, the Clinton team reached out, asked me to be political director. You know, I think they wanted somebody who was a little lefty to kind of like unite the, <laughs> the establishment and Bernie wings. And look, I think like we had a really solid state team that year. It was a good staff. They were talented. I think a lot of people forget and especially like political hobbyists and observers who like when they see their candidate like lose or you know want to just rag on on the team but like so much of a campaign is outside of your control the state director at the time and like the other senior staff they were doing everything they could I think they were having some fights with headquarters that I wasn't really involved in but I think other people have spoken about like how analytics really ruled the day on that campaign and I can honestly only speak about this third hand from things that I've had told to me, because I wasn't in those rooms, but it did feel like a lot of decision making was very top down. And we were told like where we could do principal events based on what a computer said versus, you know, what like the, the vibes on the ground were. And and then like the whole like field program that year too, I think was like way too invested in voter registration and not enough persuasion.
1: Yeah, I've heard that from a wide variety of people. Were you surprised by the result? Yes and no. It never felt good. It felt really close.
0: I wasn't privy to polling in my role on that campaign, so I didn't have any real sense of where things were, but it did not feel comfortable. It felt like there was real Trump energy, and it definitely did not feel like our energy was matching that. So that was tough. I mean, it was tough how close it was. Everybody worked really hard and it was just a punch in the gut. But immediately, I think even that night, I remember just like mentally signing up to do it again in four years because we had to fix that. And, you know, I took that experience and tried to like take lessons away from that. So when I was in a position to make arguments about where we should be doing events and where it was important to have a physical presence, I was making sure to advocate for sending the vice president to Erie. When they were planning out that really cool Amtrak tour that they did, like I was really advocating to do the capstone event in Johnstown in Cambria County, which is like a deep red place where you're never going to win as a Democrat, not for a couple decades, probably. But just the importance of like needing to go and make statements there and have honest conversations there with people and make the case that you're going to fight for them no matter what, it's so impactful. And I didn't feel like we were doing that successfully in 2016 and not through any fault. Again, like I feel conflicted about this because like I know the people who were there on the on the ground at the senior state level and all very smart, hardworking people. I think a lot had to do then with like the two candidates were just so polarizing, including Hillary, who just never gets a fair shake. Like, I know people have very intense feelings one way or another about her, but you had such a unique election with two incredibly well known and disliked candidates. And then again, weird decisions made on field and analytics that I think kept us from really doing the kind of things that you need to do in a state like Pennsylvania. So I think most of our principal events were in the cities proper or like the suburbs, nothing in rural Pennsylvania. I wanted to take those lessons and make sure like not to repeat the mistakes. So like advocating to spend time, like real time in rural places and having a holistic view of what needed to be done on the ground, super important for competing in a in a tough purple state like Pennsylvania.
1: Your description of being fired after a big win with Gillum makes me want to ask about it. What happened there? Do you understand what the thinking was and just what went down? I don't think it was ever a great personality fit. And that's fine.
0: Like sometimes candidates and managers don't connect at the level they need to but it was complex when i went down to take that job he was already under investigation by the fbi but i was told by consultants by people at the party like yeah nobody believes he's in any trouble he's just mixed up in this thing because somebody else at the city level is really corrupt and it turned out that that was true If I recall correctly, it was while the campaign was still going on, one of the councilmen was formally charged or something and didn't ever believe that Andrew was mixed up in it. But what they said is like, this is a a generational talent. He's progressive. If you go down there, you run a hard race and improve his standing so he doesn't get completely waxed, then he's going to have a future. People will be thankful for it. You you can do a, a more winnable race next time. I was like, all right. I had been unemployed for nine months. I was like interviewing on a few things. It was hard to find a a good campaign job after 2016. But again, like I looked at Andrew as somebody who I was inspired by. And again, like attracted the people with municipal backgrounds who have to come up with creative local solutions. And I thought it was a great fit. And I went down there and honestly, it started off pretty great. He's a nice guy. And we had a small scrappy team who I got along with really well. But as it went on and we actually started to execute the plan that we came up with and things were looking better and better, then like some of the kitchen cabinet type folks, like the close friends and advisors of Andrews who weren't ever present when I went down there and there were stories every week about is he gonna drop out? Is he gonna be indicted? There was no money in the bank, like his friends weren't really there to be seen. But then when we started getting better, they were showing up a lot more, trying to make decisions, trying to throw their weight around. And it was a very, very toxic relationship. And I have to say, like when it all went down, I, I felt, frankly, like relieved to just be gone and out of it. There were some really good people who stayed behind, who fought a really hard fight, and I think deserved to win. But there were also some really dumb people at the table who made really bad decisions, and it's unfortunate.
1: I am kind of envious of you having worked in Iowa for Pete in that presidential primary. Not that I I have the background or skills for that, but that I was very attracted to his candidacy and felt like it was a complicated one and that he as a candidate performed so adeptly, really quite, in my view, quite a natural, quite a amazing communicator. And there were a lot of good candidates for Democrats in the race. And a lot of my friends picked other sides. And you get out in the arena like that, and the kind of things you're exposed to, like the way uh, racial politics came in, to affect him or just uh left right within the party or left moderate or whatever like all of the things that you have to navigate it seems like quite a challenge but this guy who didn't have the credentials besides his intellect in a lot of ways rose to the top of that winnowing process it's one of many amazing stories that we've had going back through Iowa for years. Tell me a little more about what you think about Pete and what you thought about that particular race in that state.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was one of the most fun experiences I've ever had in my life. I'm glad I got to do the Iowa caucus while it still existed, RIP. Um, it looked like our presidential primary process needs to evolve beyond it, but I won't pretend to not be nostalgic for it. And also, Someone should say like the caucuses did a good job of advancing diverse non-establishment candidates. They chose the first black presidential nominee, the first woman presidential nominee. Obviously, she was establishment and then also the first gay millennial presidential nominee.
1: For me, it goes back to Gary Hart being perceived as the winner back in 84 against Mondale, both iowa and new hampshire have a way of sizing you up that's different than you get in a big media state
0: yeah totally and look i think we can replicate that process in a more diverse state and we should but uh yeah it was incredibly fun um and just special to be a part of and like what it was like i mean I use a lot of silly campaign metaphors all the time, but like, you know, it's like drop being dropped on a treadmill, turned up to, to full speed and try not to fall flat on your face. When I got down there on the ground, I was, I think, me and the comms director were employees number three and four. There were two organizers on the ground. Well, on the state team, we were three and four. And there was the makings of an HQ team. But I got there, like, I think a couple weeks after that big, like, CNN town hall or something where he really popped. And so they didn't even really realize like at the time of my hiring, just what, how real that rocket ship was, you know, they saw a surge of money come in, but like, it wasn't super clear at the time how sustainable that would be. But then it turned out that he just kept knocking it out of the park. People kept resonating. They were raising more money so we could afford to expand our operation And so we started as this tiny little team in the state of four people and grew to, I think, closer to 170, 180 by the time of the caucuses. The biggest challenge for us was building an operation that matched the quality of the candidate that we thought we had. People resonated with him so well because he could communicate really progressive values and policy ideas in a way that didn't polarize folks in the way that sometimes we do on the left when we talk about things. And complicatedly, he was also therefore viewed as more of a centrist than I think he actually is. Some of that was certainly by design, strategically trying to appeal more to the middle, but it's also effective communication and especially like when you need to win in more purple places. It was a lot of fun and being able to build an organization in a state or field matters a lot. It was just really exciting.
1: Do you think he would have been a good president? Absolutely. Absolutely. He's the
0: smartest person I've ever met. He's also just like genuinely kind and um, humble, believe it or not. Despite running for president at 39, uh, he's a really (laughs) humble on earth guy. He has that special quality of just... Again, like doing it for the right reasons, wanting to be connected to how these big decisions and processes impact real people on the ground. And again, it goes back to that like, people who are attracted to municipal politics, I think, like, get it in a way that someone who's just been in Congress doesn't, because they have to think through like the chain of events and the, you know, the order of operations that takes a policy idea. And gets that into somebody's home in the city that they're in charge of. And so Pete would nerd out about sewers and potholes and traffic design all the time. But it's that unique characteristic in his brain and how he thinks through bigger policy questions that makes him somebody who can relate to people in a real down-to-earth way. And also, it's a different approach to thinking about how policy impacts Normal folks.
1: Yeah, I think that's what makes mayors, governors compelling, sometimes more so than senators and congressmen and presidential sweepstakes. He really had a chance to carry the nomination for a moment. And then he does that kind of unite around Biden move at a crucial time, also, which probably pissed off part of the party quite a bit. But you make a transition to the Biden team, which has got to be hard. After competing with somebody, or was it you moved to state director? You've talked a little bit about it, but uh, for you, what was that like getting into the general?
0: Yeah, I mean, it wasn't hard for me. Primaries can obviously get very personal, but there were like a few months that lapsed between when Pete dropped out and when I got hired, which I think was in July, and Pete's campaign ended early March just before the pandemic for me like i always wanted to get to go to pennsylvania for the general even when you're driving around the state and people start talking to you is if we pull this off and this is when i was on pete's campaign like you know what do you want to do after iowa i mean it was always pennsylvania for me like i wanted to go back home i knew pennsylvania was going to be like top three battleground and i wanted to help win it and so when biden's team reached out i was really excited and really committed to doing it because you know obviously like in a presidential primary everybody's got a favorite pick there were so many candidates running not everybody's going to be as excited about one person as they are the next but at the end of the day races like that aren't even about the nominee they're about the people's lives who are going to be impacted by who wins and the choice was very very clear that we had to Correct the error of 2016 and send that clown pack in. And so I was thrilled to be able to do it.
1: Yeah. Even though we won it and now people sort of take for granted that we were going to win it, it wasn't, it was not a foregone conclusion by any stretch. It was a dogfight, right?
0: Oh, I mean, totally.
1: What do you think we changed besides what, I mean, you mentioned sort of like maybe less enthralled analytics and maybe, you know, more attention to the state broadly. It's a different election where you're taking on an incumbent who has a record as polarizing, let's just say, as Trump's was. But a lot of us on the progressive side have trouble grappling with the 50% approximately people who are going the other way. Like, how can that be? But a lot of people have a different lens on politics. How did you think about the state and what did it take to win? Yeah, totally. So
0: again, I think in 2016, it was a really tough dynamic having the two candidates that we did like Trump and Hillary couldn't be more different, couldn't be more polarizing for better and worse. And Hillary had the the baggage of being the punching bag of the right wing for as long as I've been alive. And that's tough to shake. And it's not her fault. And it's not fair. But I think it made her a much tougher candidate in a state like Pennsylvania at that time. Biden, on the other hand, I think benefited from having a special relationship with the state and being from there and people believing that he is from there. The joke that he's Pennsylvania's third senator is definitely something that people felt here. And so what that allowed was, I think an opening for us to have more honest conversations with voters who may be undecided who may be previous Trump voters and be able to engage them without pushing them back into, you know, their tribal <laughs> safe space. We ran a really good field program in a really tough environment, obviously with the pandemic um, and like full credit to the entire state team and especially the rest of our leadership team, like we all huddled early on, like the first in-person meeting that we had after we had all been hired together. And we just started brainstorming for the fall knowing that there were nothing but unknowns in front of us about what to do. We weren't allowed to be canvassing and (laughs) for very good safety reasons, but we started building a canvassing plan having faith that we would eventually need to do it and be allowed to do it. So we just started like mapping out what that would look like, how to implement COVID protocols. And I think because we did all that early work from the get-go before ever being given like the green light to like start a canvas program, like we were able to start it up so quickly that we knocked a ton of doors in state. And I think Pennsylvania was responsible for almost like two thirds of the national doors knocked that year. And so we really just ran real hard. We had a lot of great support from headquarters. If we had a good idea that costs money, we didn't get told no. And yeah, it was about going to everywhere. The similar motto we used uh, when we were barnstorming Pete across Iowa was campaign everywhere, talk to everyone, and adapted that for 2020 as well. I was bugging people plenty to send Biden to Erie. Because it was so symbolic. And then I mentioned the Cambry County event too. Even though there's not a ton of voters in those areas, there are a ton of voters in a lot of areas like them. And when they see that you show up and you make your case there, like they feel like you showed up to their county too. Because in some ways you did. It's uh, demographically similar, economically. And like the earned media that you get out of that stuff is gold. And so I think like the Biden team did a really great job of campaigning holistically, focusing on local press, correcting, I think, past mistakes of how people, at least as far as Pennsylvania is concerned, about how people look at running a competitive race in, in a state like this.
1: What point in the Fetterman campaign that just concluded did you join them? i had had some casual
0: conversations with some of their campaign team during the primary, but I wasn't involved or helping. Friends with Malcolm, who ran a great race. He's a state representative from Philly. Good friends with John, and would chat with the campaign team once in a while. And didn't start taking any kind of official role until a couple days before, I guess, the election day. I spoke to John. I think yeah, the day before he had his stroke is when John called and like offered an official role, and like we hadn't pegged a title down or anything, but it was basically going to be like senior advisor wanted my help with general election strategy and ramping up the program. And so I said, yes, but we were going to talk about details. And then that happened. And, you know, a a few things changed, but Bobby, who had been managing the primary and came out of John's Lieutenant Governor's office, moved over to like a senior advisor role to just be with John more and make sure that he was getting the support that he needed in his recovery. And then I stepped in as campaign manager and I think hit the ground officially like June 1st. And now that's like getting dropped on a treadmill, turned up to full speed and, and having to, to, to figure that out. Cause
1: boy, I'm not even sure that's the right metaphor. I'm not sure what the right metaphor is, but it's a nationally important race with a candidate who has a lot of unique qualities who had a major medical event in a, State that you know, certainly in a presidential midterm when you're in power, is you know it's going to be hard, you know it's not going to be easy. You have to pick up a staff that you haven't led from the beginning. It seems like I have a kind of a personality with some calm to it, from what I can tell. But what was going on inside? I definitely think my like Southern California laid back appeal
0: helps manage the intense stress of these situations practicing surfing water helps you surf politics? Something like that, but yeah, it's very stressful and you're right, like, you know, I had to walk into a team that I didn't know or have any bond with. They had just been thrown through like the biggest loop that you could be thrown in a campaign, you know, having your candidate wind up in the hospital like that. And I think it's, you know, traumatizing for a lot of folks in some ways and so you had this epic primary win. John won all of Pennsylvania's 67 counties, just absolutely dominated. And like morale was just in the gutter because I think people had been through like a fairly personal primary. Like some of the attacks on John that came from like independent expenditures and some of his opponents got pretty personal. That's always tough. And then, like, all the stuff with the stroke in the hospital and like not knowing what's going to happen to this person who you care about and have committed your life to electing it was just super tough. So, I went out there on primary night actually after talking with some of the team and, and wanted to see how folks were doing. And should have been like an exciting, like, celebratory occasion, but you had a lot of people who were just in the dumps and uh, not really sure about how things were moving forward. And so, you got to walk into that and acknowledge what people are going through and also help like lift them up. And we had to bring in a lot of new people because the team needed to grow. And so I think we did a pretty good job of creating like a holistic, positive culture on the campaign for the general election. It wasn't perfect, but I don't think the divide between like old staff and new staff was as sharp as it can be and has been on some other campaigns I can think of. We had a great team that was really creative and enjoyed brainstorming and like a lot of the wild stuff that we did with digital was the brainchild of some of the folks from like New Deal who were on the team and and also just other like people on the consulting team, other staffers we just throw throw things at the wall in a really collaborative way. and if there was a good idea, we just try to run with it, and we always wanted to take the approach of like especially in those first months, like lifting up John's message by embracing his voice and by having fun and never being mean. Like the other side, I think hurt themselves by how cruel they were in their attacks on John. I think that legitimately backfired for a lot of reasons. One, because John is like a well-known figure in Pennsylvania. People know that he's real. I think the attacks that that were leveled against him just never Landed as legitimate for a lot of folks. It kind of left me feeling optimistic for people's character and ability to discern bullshit from the truth because all the attacks on his health were just so vile and taken out of context. And I think it was encouraging to see the way that real voters responded to both those negative attacks and also our attempts to be as transparent as possible about it. It was a wild ride. And I'm glad glad it ended the way it did. Uh, it was nice to be able to celebrate on election night for once after a few years of nail biters and drawn out vote counts. That was great.
1: That I'm sure people have asked you a lot about that digital stuff that you just referred to. Does that work, do you think, in other campaigns, the way it worked for that particular candidate? Sometimes it feels like the really good digital stuff is tied to a good a candidate's personality which is distinctive and authentic overused words sometimes but can you run a great digital campaign for a bland person or does it take like the combination of a good digital thinking and somebody 6'9 and quirky and different I think you could run a good digital campaign for a
0: bland person if your candidate's in on the joke that they're a bland person <laughs> and will like allow you to play with that? Sure, but I think what you're asking is, can you like carbon copy the Fetterman digital approach to some average candidate and like, no, you definitely cannot, and I think you're right. Like a lot of the stuff that is successful on digital is successful because it's so clearly genuinely presented as part of that candidate's personality and already known image. And if you're trying to veer outside of that, it's just not going to land. It's not going to seem like you're being honest with the people you're trying to communicate to. Like a lot of people ask about, you know, what can other Democrats do to be more like John? And it's, you know, the answer is don't be more like John, be more like yourself and just try to do it creatively. (laughs) And that's not a clear answer. It's not easy. It requires a lot of thought and experimentation, but you have to be true to the voice of your candidate. And again, this comes back to like candidate selection. Like let's find better candidates. We don't need to bend over backwards trying to create exciting digital campaigns for boring people. Let's go find some people with real stories to tell and then tell them.
1: The other side nominated a well-known character I think you guys got out and defined him very effectively, very early. Do you think you could have beaten the guy who came in second, who's already nosing around for a run next time there's a a race?
0: Yeah, I think we could have. I think it would have been harder. I think McCormick would have made fewer dumb decisions than the Oz team did. I think he would have probably spent more of his money and done it in a smarter way which would have made it more difficult for us. But at the end of the day, I mean, he would have been a carpetbagger too. We wouldn't have had the fun Jersey punchline, wouldn't have had the Snooki video, but um, you, know, you still would have had this Mr. Peanut Monopoly man from you know, his mansion in Connecticut coming into the Commonwealth and trying to play off as being one of us. And I think we still would have been able to successfully draw that distinction in an effective way. But yeah, it would have been harder and possibly tighter, but it's really tough to guess on that kind of thing because would his campaign have had some of the same operatives on it? Quite possibly. I mean, some of the people who were on Oz's campaign were on McCormick's primary, so they probably would have made some of the same like shitty decisions about how to attack John over his health that would have backfired and probably would have done some of the Same dumb things they did, like constantly calling reporters' names on the record and telling them they were idiots and not wanting to talk to them. Like, not the greatest press relations strategy I can think of, but yeah, he was definitely a more institutional candidate. And so I think might have appealed to moderates in a slightly more effective way than Oz did. But at the same time, like, it's just tough to guess that and tough to assess what kind of boneheaded decisions he would have made as nominee. But I think John would have prevailed again, because at at the core of those two people, one person was clearly Pennsylvanian, clearly had a career of fighting for for folks, and the other person clearly did not.
1: How do you think about the art versus the science of campaigning? I talked to a lot of people who are in the analytics space, are message testing, are worried about the field program, are worried about like the tactical parts of things. There's value to all of that. And then there's also kind of the political instinct, the great strategy, the individuality of the candidate, all kinds of other political considerations that come down to political judgment. As a campaign manager, how do you think about what works and what doesn't work and how to balance those things?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I agree with you that all that stuff has value. You need to test things. You need to have some data driving your decision making, but I view it more along the lines of having data and analytics provide you with boundaries and goalposts, but Politics is about people and you really have to be attuned to listening to people and listening to people tell you what they want and what they're looking for. And spreadsheets can't always do that. The candidates who appeal to me and who I've always enjoyed working for are candidates who I think are effective communicators because they listen to people and they know why they're fighting and they stay true to the why. You can use the data and analytics to measure how effectively you're doing your various ways of communicating that why and that message and tweaking it. But we were talking about 2016, and there are certainly other examples where I think Democrats get way too into the analytics and way too into the science aspect of it that you lose the fact that, like, we are social creatures and how and why folks interact with and engage with issues or with other people is at the heart of everything that we do in every aspect of our lives. And that's no different in politics. And so we can't pretend that you can ignore that on a campaign. Our team on Federin, like, joked all the time very annoyingly about vibes and (laughs) and we were always like uh because there's just so much frankly dumb press about john's look and like he's six foot nine he's seven foot three the press loves to write this like paul bunyan story and it's all very vibes based and a lot of that plays in our favor but the polling in the race was really tough to comprehend both internally and externally they were saying Different things all the time. Our polling was pretty consistent, but always felt a little gloomier than like the vibe check that we would joke about on the ground. That's where I think you have to have like a little bit of a spidey sense of being able to not let the data overwhelm your human sensibilities about how you're interacting with folks. Otherwise, you can outsmart yourself and get dragged off course by numbers that are lying to you.
1: Well, Congratulations on that win. Where do you want to take your career going forward? You've run a number of campaigns. You have opportunity to run more. Do you want to run a presidential? Do you want to run for office yourself? Do you want to have a consulting group? Those are the kind of typical things people do. Where do you want to be? Um, <laughs> I definitely
0: do not want to run for office myself. I think I've put too many people through the ringer of call time and Campaign events that I wouldn't want to do that to myself after years of doing it to other people. I actually am consulting now. Uh, My wife and I, Jane Slusser, partners at Hilltop, opened up a Pennsylvania branch. And, you know, we're trying to continue to work with progressive campaigns and causes and, and help continue to advance them. I love campaign management. I love building and leading a big team. It's one of the reasons why I was so excited to do 2020 and have like a really big operation and why I was so crushed that we had to do it in a pandemic. And I met like 30 people out of my 350 person staff. And so that was a really fun piece of Fetterman too, was being able to like lead a team again. So yeah, I'd love to manage a presidential one day, maybe. I don't know if I would actually want to do that. It sounds incredibly exhausting at this stage in my life especially with young kids. But I'm already managing another race. I'm helping uh, Helen Gim run for mayor of Philadelphia. And again, like I think most people get done with the midterms and definitely deserve to be on the beach somewhere. But Philadelphia has got important, very high stakes stuff going on here. Uh, Helen is a special candidate with a real record of getting shit done. And that's what I've always been attracted to. And so... We're going to go help her try and become the next mayor, first woman mayor of Philadelphia, too.
1: I noticed that your wife has quite a resume in politics also, who you just referenced. How is it to have a dual political household? Do you end up talking politics or avoiding politics on the home front? I think we try
0: to avoid it just because it's so exhausting, but you can't. No, but it's great. I mean, like I wouldn't have been able to do Fetterman without having a partner who understood how crazy this world is and supported the ability for me to be in Pittsburgh for half the week. I'm just incredibly grateful for having a partner that is like so understanding of that because it's tough campaign. I think people don't realize or they maybe forget, but like campaigns are so hard on the staff. Whether you win or lose, it requires a lot of sacrifice. And so allow me to shout out every campaign staffer out there who uh, toiled away at the midterms. Whether you won or lost, it's a lot. I definitely see all the hard work out there. I've got friends who are on some really tough wins and some really tough losses. And keep getting in the fight. Go take a break and and get back in it. Come join us in Philly and elect Helen. (laughs) Yeah. Is there a
1: question I should have asked you that I didn't? I don't think so.
0: I think talking about the why and like the kind of candidates that I, I like to work for, that's usually the thing I always have to remind people to to talk about at the end of these interviews because that gets forgotten. But that, I'm glad we could spend a lot of time on it today.
1: Well, honor to talk to you. I wish you luck on the next step. Anything else you want to say? No, I think I'm good. I'm looking
0: forward to a couple of days on the beach at some point, but might not be for a while. <laughs>
1: well, I hope you get them. I hope they're they're great. That was Brendan. He's at Brendan MCP on Twitter. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.